it's my intention to talk about metta and its power of healing and liberation as a path of friendship and as a foundation and catalyst for wisdom. And I still intend to do that, but not tonight. <laughs> I'm going to take a... <laughs> it's, um, I'm just going to offer a belated Halloween Dhamma talk. I'm glad the pumpkin is still up. And talk about um, the mind of Mara and the, the Mara mind within us and the Bodhi mind within us the dark and the light through the um, Buddhist six temperament types, personality types. One of the great disciples of the Buddha, known for his wisdom, was Sariputta. Uh, And he was next only to the Buddha in his capacity of wisdom. He once gave a Dhamma talk called the Discourse on No Blemishes in which the the underlying theme or message was an honest self-assessment, the importance of honest self-assessment on looking into our minds with uh, wide open vision. That it's an essential condition for spiritual growth. And he used the example of a a bronze bowl, that when the bronze bowl is neglected, it becomes tarnished and dirty and dusty. And its very nature of brilliance is obscured. If we don't recognize our blemishes, we don't understand them and are aware of them and are able to transform them, then our own mind becomes obscured, becomes tarnished. Sariputta went on to say that self-knowledge is indeed quite difficult, but ultimately it is liberating and uh, empowering to cultivate. That once we start on such a path, there's no turning back because there's only the sense of continuously stepping into our dharma, power, and uh, toward that goal of liberation. The Buddha spoke about an inner radiance within us, um, a luster like the sun that's within us all, and that he said was only obscured by the visitors of greed, hatred, and delusion, three psychological roots within us all who aren't fully liberated. He, he spoke of these roots not in a way that, uh, in terms of being wrong or bad. The Buddha didn't speak a, about a doctrine of good and evil. He spoke about causation. He spoke about action and fruit. And he said it was our aim or our task simply to understand what is called kusala or skillful and akusala or unskillful so that the kusala are the healthy pleasant states of mind that lend toward this um, 
bodhi mind within, and the the akusla or unhealthy psychological roots that tend to obscure, uh, weight down, and um, uh, and burden the heart or mind. Mara, as this has been presented before, is the personification of greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, all the negative states, or all the clouds covering uh, this sun, this solar luminescence within. Mara feeds on not being seen clearly, on non-recognition, through attack, through seduction, through confusion, through deception, through betrayal. These are all the ways that the Mara mind works its way in uh, the stream of our life. They're all impersonal states. That is, they don't belong to anyone. They are not inherent in the mind stream. Nevertheless, this Mara mind feeds on negative energy. Anger, apathy, attachment. The yogi, on the other hand, who sits to cultivate calm and metta and clear awareness, provides no food to Mara. And the Buddha said, in this way, causes Mara to tremble out of hunger, of not being fed. So the question we could ask ourselves, is Mara internal or external? And the answer, I think, the correct answer would, would be to say both, or it's the same, that the, the spider's web is woven from within. And the display of anger or attachment or delusion arises from our inner aversion and fear and anger and attachment. All arising out of the web of confusion, the psychological root of delusion. All arising out of this veil of delusion. The root of delusion is like a shade over a lamp, like the clouds over the sun. It obscures that natural radiance and brings confusion about what is the cause or what is the path to happiness and what is the path to sorrow. How do we know which way to go? Both the radiant, beautiful states what we could call the Bodhi mind, and the dark Maric forces within, both are the very material of our practice, the fabric of our practice. They're the geography through which we traverse in our journey, in this great journey. And they're the vehicle for liberation. Both the Mara mind, understanding it, and the Bodhi mind, understanding it and cultivating it. Our aim is that honest, face-to-face self-assessment, the awareness of the Mara allurement into spiritual slumber, as well as the, the, the Bodhi qualities of awakening, of calm, of creating that which causes Mara to tr- tremble. Without this honest self-assessment, 
all of our dharma aspirations can lead us astray. That is, all of our achievement, achievements, spiritual achievements, can be employed to reinforce that separate sense of self or I. So it requires a wise consideration, wise attention to reveal the internal Mara and the internal Bodhi as the the untrained mind. It's very powerful, but very dangerous. Because it doesn't know the difference between that, those actions that lead toward happiness and liberation, and those actions that lead toward unhappiness and further entrapment. Awareness and wisdom, on the other hand, are far more powerful because they're, they cultivate, they train the mind. And the trained mind is more channeled, more clear, more aware of what is our present moment experience and leads us in the direction of the Bodhi mind. The, the text, the commentarial text called the Vasudhimaga presents a, um, a kind of guide or model that describes different ty- types of temperament that can help as a model. And it's often presented, at least from this perspective, some almost 2,000 years later, seems somewhat, in a way, entertaining, although I don't think it was intended that way at the time. But it helps to provide a model, I think, to help us stand back, to help our awareness take this honest self-assessment and to be okay with both sides. So the Vasudhimaga presents these various uh, temperaments. Sometimes it presents them in three basic ones, the so-called sensuous type, aversion type, and delusion type. And then, uh, and then it expands into six types because uh, it presents the three unwholesome types and then three corresponding wholesome types that are aligned with those first three. And then they also are presented in all sorts of combinations, I think, um, spiraling out into about 14 different types. You know, we can, we can, be, uh, some, we can be an aversive type and a... Uh, sensuous type, both, sort of a bipolar <laughs> pathological condition. <laughs> or we can be very balanced and have equal amounts of all three unwholesome types. And, and then you put in the, the wholesome types along with the unwholesome types and it gets very, you know, maybe like a multiple personality disorder or something. <laughs> so these six temperaments are either directly or indirectly. I'm only going to speak on the six. They're, only, they're either directly or indirectly connected to those psychological roots, the unhealthy psychological roots within us all of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the ones, that the, the three that are the unwholesome types, that is directly connected to the, to the unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, and delusion, are first the sensuous type, which is characterized by attachment to enjoyment of pleasant objects, pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, 
sensations, thoughts, and so forth. The sensuous type uh, has all levels of wanting, clinging, indulgence, uh, greediness, and selfishness. The second type, the aversion type, is characterized by the tendency to judge, to uh, reject, to destroy, uh, to criticize. And it spans the spectrum of, from anything from sarcasm to brutality. The third unwholesome personality type is the delusion type, which is the inability to distinguish generally what leads to sorrow and what leads to happiness. It's characterized by confusion, bewilderment, chaos. Then there are three personality types that have an indirect connection to the three roots of greed, hatred, delusion. These are the three wholesome types. The three wholesome types are, first of all, faith, characterized by confidence, devotion, trust, that, uh, that venturing spirit, willing to take risks. The faith types uh, easily trust others and have confidence uh, in themselves, and they seek, have a tendency towards seeking out the wholesome. The second of the wholesome types is the wisdom type, which has a tendency to, to see clearly without cynicism or sentimentality. And the third of the wholesome personality types is the discursive, or let's say the skillful discursive, sometimes called the reasoning type, which has this capacity of uh, applied mind that has a versatility of interests uh, and skillful use of, of concept, of reasoning, of thought, thought power. There's a very close relationship between the three unwholesome types and the three wholesome types. There are parallels. So I'm going to talk about the connection, like how one parallels the other, how the wholesome temperament parallels the unwholesome temperament. Faith. How does the faith temperament parallel the one that's like it? And the one that's like it is the sensuous type. The faith type and the sensuous type, very closely connected. Both types experience a strong affection and liberality. They are attracted to people or objects or viewpoints that, are, uh, that seem attractive to them. Both seek out and desire something. The sensuous types seek sense pleasures. They have a strong attraction to things of beauty. And they notice things. They notice details. They look, they have a tendency to look for not the flaws, you know, in something that doesn't even appear very pleasant to most of us. They'll find something quite pleasant. <laughs> and they notice all the little, all the little aspects or details. Sensuous types are uh, are loved by policemen who, who when, they, um, when they're looking for a suspect, you know, they're really happy that it was a sensuous type that noticed the suspects. 
the essentialist type will describe everything. You know, they'll say, yes, there were two suspects. And the, the man had this sandy blonde hair that uh, he combed straight back with a couple, few little gray strands in it. He had a <laughs> cleft chin and about a day old beard. And he had one gold stud in his right ear. And he, he wore this uh, white cotton shirt uh, with pinstripes and a tweed coat over that. And he had, he had uh, beige colored slacks that were cuffed and a braided tan belt. And it looked like he was wearing, I think they were Rockport walkers. <laughs> one of his shoelaces was untied. <laughs> and he was with this woman who had jet black hair, just a little over shoulder length, straight. There was one little punk purple strip on the right side. And she had silver earrings all up one side. You know, each of those was hanging, in, except there was one gold one in the middle. The other ones were hanging down. The other side, one long hanging, but I didn't see it very clearly. Her head was turned. She, <laughs> she had high cheekbones. And she had a little mole under her right side and a dimple on the left side. And she had a loose-fitting silk shirt. And it was tucked into a pair of dark blue guest jeans. And she had a studded belt on black. And I think she was wearing Nike runners with reflectors. And I, and I believe I detected a scent of samsara perfume. <laughs> Sensuous types have this confidence and devotion that arises when things are going well. You know, it's sort of like uh, when, you have, when they have a good sitting, it's at the end of the sitting, it's like, yes, you know. <laughs> they, they rode the wave of that and they, they love it. They're really attached to that. <laughs> the faith types... They also seek things, but they seek a strong connection to, to Dharma qualities. It is that there's that aspect of surrender, really letting go into the Dharma. And there's this powerful, healthy desire that seeks wholesome things like compassionate action or that space or living out of that space of generosity or, or non-harming or metta. Uh, and they really acquire, they really seek out these and cultivate this sense of being that comes, that arises out of this confidence and that attracts these states of beauty. There's a shadow side, that is, when, when the confidence isn't so strong, when the, when the faith type is feeling weak or tired, then it can easily shade into attachment. And, uh, and then one finds themselves perhaps clinging to aspects of their practice, their strong uh, attachment to their tradition or to their particular technique or to their teacher. You know, and it becomes an unhealthy kind of uh, desire. Both of these types hold on. They both have the character of both the sensuous and faith types hold on to things. The sensuous types tend to hold hard to things that can be harmful. They can't let go of things potentially harmful. Whereas the faith type holds on strongly to healthy Dhamma qualities. There's a way of carrying oneself 
that that are uh, that both these types are seen through that is our deportment and one's deportment can reflect you know and it's hard to tell which either the sensuous type or the faith type so it's said that the the way of carrying oneself of both of these is that in the walking they they walk very carefully with sort of springy steps evenly and they sit uh, very confidently and gracefully. And that said, when they, when, they, um, when they sweep, they take the broom very evenly, and they sweep in even strokes very cleanly. It looks really neat. You want to get the sensuous or faith types to do the housework. <laughs> and they eat very slowly, savoring, relishing each bite. And they love everything about you know, the, the setting, the arrangement, the, the, the table setting, the candles and the flowers and how the, the, the silverware is placed, and even the food arranged, you know, in the plates, and how they arrange it in their own plate. And the peas go over here, and the, the <laughs> rice is over there, and the uh, lasagna over there, just so. And they just relish, they relish each bite. And when they go to bed, they, they spread their bed very methodically, very evenly, and they, they fluff up their pillows just so. And they get into their bed in a very composed manner, you know, hugging their pillows and finding, getting very comfortable, you know, holding their pillows. <laughs> and they, they sleep in a confident manner and they wake up, you know, also with this air of, of um, grace and confidence, very slowly. They seek out the pleasant, overlooking the faults. They find the virtues in the smallest little thing, and they, and they linger. You know, they, they, they don't like to leave like a beautiful sunset. They'll watch every last little drop of sun ray. How do the wisdom temperaments parallel the aversion temperaments? These two also very closely aligned. Neither take anything on faith. Both have sharp critical faculties. They have, both have bright, intelligent capacity to, um, to see into things of critical inquiry. And they have an intuitive grasp of people of ideas, of meditation objects, comes quite naturally to them. The aversion types have this incisive, penetrating intelligence. If things are going well, then the understanding can be quite strong. But often it's counterproductive. It, it um, shades into condemning, to dislike, to deconstructing what's happening. Uh, they focus on the faults. So, for the example, it's quite difficult if, if, say, a sensuous or faith type is watching a sunset with an aversion type, <laughs> because they might spoil it for you. You know, you're watching this really beautiful sunset and all the lavender colors and strings of pink and purple and, and crimson. It's just really beautiful. And the aversion type might start saying, well, you know why that looks so beautiful, don't you? You know that volcano in the Philippines, Mount Pinatubo? Well, it's spreading this pollution all over the planet. And it may look nice to you, but actually at this very moment, 
it's polluting all the cities around the world. And they'll go on and on, <laughs> taking, away, taking away the enjoyment of a perfectly beautiful sunset. They'll just find fault with anything. The wisdom type have the capacity of wise discernment, similar to the aversion type, but it's a more healthy kind of criticism. It's a deep, intuitive feel of people and of things and of ideas and views and so forth. And they're very close to the aversion type in, in liking debate or disagreement. But they don't tear things apart. They don't have an uncaring uh, critical view of things. However, it's quite close to uh, shading in to an unhealthy criticism, where the wise discernment soon becomes uh, aversion, and what was a healthy critical inquiry now becomes condemning, judging, you know, picking apart, uh, deconstructing. And then the confidence and the commitment uh, start to weaken, um, and they may be consumed by the aversive qualities. They criticize and blame and so forth. Both sides seek faults. The aversion type, though, tends to seek phantom faults, not real faults. And they'll, they'll blame people and uh, not really see clearly the situation. Whereas the wisdom type seeks out real faults. I mean, they may notice the calaces, pride and jealousy and envy and anger and attachment and so forth. Whereas the aversion type condemns beings, that is, demonizes beings, humans and other beings, for being at fault, the, the wisdom type sees the formations, that is, they actually see not the beings as being at fault, but certain of the mental states. And they'll tune into those. So they, can, they, they make uh, wise you know, counselors or teachers. Because you don't feel, you don't feel condemned or judged as a human being, as a person. Rather, they have this capacity to just move right in and see impersonally, because they see these states, these formations, in an impersonal way. They don't attach them to the being, and that's the difference. Either demonizing the whole being, or seeing clearly what truly lies at uh, uh, as a fault. That is an impersonal state, such as anger or attachment. Both these types, both the aversion and wisdom type, uh, let go of objects. But the one lets go out of aversion, whereas the other, the wisdom type, lets go out of understanding. Just as the sensuous type and faith type, they hold on. One holding on even when it's harmful, the other holding on only to what is helpful. So too, the uh, aversion types and wisdom types, they have a tendency to let go. But one lets go out of anger or ill will, and the other simply of understanding. So they also have a deportment. You can't tell the difference in how they carry themselves. Both of them walk as if they're digging their points of feet into the ground, sort of a, a stomping, you know, uh, dragging their feet along as they walk. And they sit rigid and stiff. And if they were to sweep, they grasp the broom very tightly and they sweep uncleanly 
unevenly, you know, the, the dust just moving from one place to another, not really going anywhere. And the, in their actions, they, they seem tense and stiff and tight. When they eat, they eat really quickly without savoring each bite, without really enjoying it. And they, they hate getting something untasty. You know, that's going to spoil the whole meal. Everything else is good, but one bad bite. <laughs> and in, in the, when they go to bed, they, they kind of spread it very hastily and they fling their body down. <laughs> and they sleep with a scowl. <laughs> and they're annoyed when awakened. You know, hate to get up. Generally, they, you find them confrontative and aggressive. They avoid the unpleasant and they only tend to see the negative side. So these types, wisdom and uh, aversion types, look for the faults and they dwell on the faults, overlooking the virtues. It could be, you know, 99% virtue, but they'll find the fault. Tight, anxious to leave, you know, they, they don't want to linger around. The third pair, discursive, that is a skillful, skillful discursive or reasoning type, is parallel to the delusion type. Both have this brilliant capacity to, to consider things well, to follow topics along, and to keep considering and keep following. You know, they really stay with a, a topic. The delusion types, when things are going well, they see the many sides of things. Uh, they consider the multiple possibilities and options, you know, both in the world and in terms of meditative practice. It's a great flexibility. No friction, really easy and uh, carefree manner and attitude. They're, it's great having uh, deluded friends around because, you know, they don't care. You can have them over for dinner and you can feed them whatever you want, you know. Feed them leftovers or... They're just... They just don't care. They're oblivious in that way. <laughs> it becomes counterproductive, though, when things aren't going well, when this easiness and fluidity of mind becomes um, perplexity for them, becomes chaotic and confusing. On the other hand, the, the reasoning types, the discursive types. This is the uh, applied mind where one carefully ponders aspects of things and are able to follow, you know, follow the breath, follow sensations, follow sounds, or uh, whatever the topic of discussion might be. Uh, it can be very complex, Dharma topics, but they stay with it. They have that quality of uh, vitaka. And this is the vitaka type, that is, applied mind that connects to things and stays with it. Really connects to whatever the object is. And it arouses, this applied mind arouses all the other skillful states along with it of investigation and energy uh, and mindfulness and so forth. When the discursive or applied mind type is weak, it can become counterproductive and turn into multiple uh, distracting thoughts, you know, from well-intentioned starts. It becomes confusing and chaotic. So if they're tired or, you know, the borderline and, and become lost in thought, they, they just may not know what to do. And they say, well, 
And maybe I should be mindful of the breath, you know, rising, falling. And then they might think, well, maybe I should do contemplation of the body. It might be more grounding. Check out the body. But they don't get very far in that, and they start thinking, I wonder what, what I'm feeling. Is this a pleasant feeling that's happening? Or unpleasant? Well, maybe it's neutral. I don't know, I'm confused. What mind state is this anyway? You know? Maybe I should do metta. <laughs> so it shades into delusion, you know, and it conditions the mind toward uh, confusion out of this uh, perplexity. Both the deluded and the skillful discursive types can experience and do experience either vague or no opinions of their own. So they, you know, they tend to have to ask someone else how they feel. You know, <laughs> look it up in a book. You know, I think I feel that way. <laughs> and both are quick to respond to sense impressions. You know, whatever comes in, they're right there with it. They can be very flexible and immediately see all sides of you know, of a sound and sound waves and nuances of it. Very quick in response. Both the discursive and deluded types carry themselves also in a similar way. And they walk in a very perplexed gait, you know. They place each foot very hesitantly, you know. It's almost like they're not sure that they should actually play, put it down or not. <laughs> and then they lift it hesitantly. <laughs> And they're kind of in this vague haze when they walk around, you know, <laughs> tripping, bumping into things, <laughs> bumping into people, dropping things. And they sit in sort of a muddled manner. <laughs> and when they sweep, they grasp the broom very loosely and sweep neither cleanly nor evenly. But this dust or the sand gets scattered everywhere. It's still, you know, hovering in the atmosphere. And in their actions, it's loose and muddled and indecisive. They don't know what they're doing. And when they eat, <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> There's no settled choice. They don't know if they like it or dislike it. They can't say what it tastes like. It's usually dripping and spilling all over the place. <laughs> And when they go to bed, they, they spread everything all awry, and they just kind of flop themselves, face down, body sprawled out. <laughs> and they awake confused, you know, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> Did I brush my teeth? Or <laughs> what do I have to do today? <laughs> so generally, they're neither attached nor critical. The faith types and sensuous types they both have attachment. One's healthy, one's unhealthy. The, the, the wisdom types and the aversion types, they both are critical. One in a healthy way, one in an unhealthy way. The luda types are neither. You know, just, that's why they're so easy to be with. They're great traveling companions. <laughs> Take the window seat. Sure, you can have the window seat. You want the hard bed? It's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, it's hard when we're either bipolar or tripolar because it's really a mess in our own when, it's, when we're carrying all those around ourselves. So, 
There's the three wholesome personality types that are indirectly related to the three unwholesome roots, psychological roots of greed, hatred, delusion. The faith type manifests wholesome desire, uh, dhamma chanda, that looks like and can shade into attachment. The wisdom type manifests a wholesome discernment that looks like and can easily shade into um, aversion, uh, uncaring, critical uh, judgment. And the, the reasoning type, the skillful applied mind, the discursive mind type, manifests a wholesome uh, reflection, wholesome consideration. But they look like and can easily shade into confusion. Although the, the three unwholesome types are directly related to the unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, delusion, there's powerful um, opportunity, there's potential with mindfulness to transform them into their uh, counterpart. So that the sensuous type with committed practice develops faith, that is able to transform uh, the unhealthy attachment into a healthy passion for Dhamma, a love for the Dhamma, connection with things of, of Dhamma nature. And they're led, they're inspired and um, carried by these Dhamma qualities. The aversion type with practice develops a deep intuitive understanding that where the critical mind becomes transformed into incisive investigation uh, of our nature and being able to see things as they really are, being able to see the suchness of things. And the deluded type is with practice develops a powerful versatility, um, command of logical thought patterns, really able to appreciate the logical nature of Dhamma, seeing the patterns seeing the interdependence of things, to delve into the complex complexities of the Buddha's teaching uh, and with skilled reasoning have a command of, of them, be able to integrate them into their life. So these are the types. These are the three and the three wholesome, the three unwholesome, the six temperaments. Don't start watching how everybody walks. You know? <laughs> Only your meditation teacher knows for sure which ones. <laughs> and the model presented is presented in a loose way because it's, uh, the spirit and the intention is for all, uh, all of us, uh, again, to, to have this healthy inquiry, this self-assessment and who we really are. All of us, until we're fully liberated, carry the three roots. You know, we all have elements of greed, hatred, delusion, those types, and how they manifest. But it's interesting to see you know, which ones we might you know, major in, the more predominant ones. But just use the system in a loose way, because um, that's what it's meant for. With, as our wisdom grows, we don't need a scheme. You know, we just know in a moment which type we may be manifesting or which aspect. Nevertheless, the Vasudhimaga kindly goes on to present antidotes to the the um, uh, unwholesome types and uh, supports for the wholesome types. So that as meditative aids, the sens sensuous type 
uh, is recommended to live in lodging that is uh, spattered with dirt and bats, is dilapid dilapidated and bleak, and then the ceiling is either too high or too low, threatened by lions and tigers, with a very muddy path up to your front door, and a bed, having bed and uh, uh, chair bugs. <laughs> it should be ugly and unsightly. But we could just translate that and say it just should be simple. The aim is just to counter uh, the compelling infatuation we may have toward uh, sense objects. The sensuous type easily, easily gets hooked by the perception of beauty to the extent of not being able to see uh, the reality of things, the real nature of things. So the, the antidotes offered are, first of all, to contemplate anicca, or impermanence. This in the way of understanding the lokadamas, the way of the world, the opposites of pain and pleasure, or gain and loss, or praise and blame, or pain and pleasure. And to uh, consider that whatever is young gets old, and whatever is healthy gets unhealthy. So that the whole spectrum of our life is appreciated as it truly is. So contemplation on Anicca. Uh, secondly, uh, a couple of body meditations. One is very specific and one more general. One is where you can put your attention uh, on your forehead and feel the skin with your mindfulness and then float your attention all the way down the front of your body and up the back of your body and back around your head and then stop on your forehead again. And then go a little deeper and feel the flesh. So you go from skin and you go to the flesh and do the same thing. Down, under, around, back up, and over again. And then you go down to the bone level with your awareness. And feel the hardness of the bone and do the same thing. It's right down and back up again. And then when you get back to, the, uh, to your forehead, you, you go the other way, starting on the bone level. Around again and then to the flesh level and around again then to the skin level. And thirdly is the establishing mindfulness of the body, which we do mostly here in our practice. Just being aware to the extent where we begin to see and appreciate the impersonal nature of the body, that all its causes and conditions, and that every element that we experience, every pressure, every sensation, every point of uh, heat and tightness and tension is continually appearing and vanishing again. And that way we get more of a clear vision and understanding of the nature of these bodies that is both appreciative, that is it can see and, and appreciate and feel uh, the beauty and the wonder of the nature of the body, but also see its unattractive sides as well. So what becomes established is what is called the power of the noble ones wherein the awareness becomes so equanimous that we're able to see beauty and decay and decay and beauty. And we remain balanced in the face of either. You know, so maybe when we're feeling um, bad about our bodies, we do, we reflect on its beauty. We're able to appreciate this, that this body carries us through this life so that we're able to practice. And we carefully learn to appreciate it and love it. 
or when we're feeling strong attachment, as in the case of sensuous types, you know, we learn to uh, be, change our perception, deepen it and broaden it, so that we can view it with uh, non-attachment. This way we're able to transform the attachment into dhamma desire uh, and have confidence in dhamma pleasures, not be hooked by just the, the sensuous pleasures of the world. For the aversion type, we recommend extremely pleasant, beautiful, well-proportioned frieze and lattice work and you know, satin canopies and, and soft flooring and smooth uh, everything, you know, just festoons of flowers and scents and everything. That's how it's described. So that it should make you feel at home. The practice recommended for the aversion types is the four Brahma-viharas since they have the capacity to transform the pessimism of aversion types into uh, connection, into that appreciative, discriminating awareness. The Brahma-vihara practices like metta and compassion, joy and so forth, they, they melt the barriers that help construct that critical mind that takes positions in an uncaringly critical way. As the barriers melt and, and the soft edges are smooth and the mind becomes pliant and supple, then mindfulness is able to uh, transform the aversion into uh, a genuine, penetrating insight into the nature of things. Diluted and discursive types, both are uh, uh, recommended that they have pleasant spaces, you know, uh, particularly for the Deluded type, it should be open, wide open view. And the practice, a lot of their practice should be at first one of spaciousness, you know, maybe attentive to sounds a lot, and that real relaxation. And for the discursive types, that they should also have a um, relatively wide, but not quite as wide as a sense of space at first. And then to gradually bring in the samadhi. So for the discursive and the deluded types, walking meditation is good. And when you really feel spaced out, for the deluded types, to make their awareness more general, more open. Uh, and for the discursive types, it helps them to actually, as soon as possible, concentrate more on the sensations of walking, be with the sensations of walking. Both types tend for their minds and thoughts to be scattered, so it's important to begin to reel them in and get more focus. And once the walking gets one calmer and more collected, uh, then breath meditation can be quite helpful to counter the wandering. And gradually to uh, appreciate the lawfulness of things, to understand and begin to see the nature of the mind and body not being lost in the particulars, in the objects, uh, the things, as much as the nature of things. Because for these types, they begin to appreciate the logical uh, aspects of Dhamma. That's not all random and chaotic. So it begins to pull in their interest and their uh, um, focus. Faith types, also, pleasant surroundings. For them, it's helpful to reflect on inspiring things. 
such as the uh, excellent qualities of the Dhamma, to reflect on the Triple Gem, the inspiration that comes of reflecting on the Buddha, or the Dhamma, or the Sangha. Such a practice matures and strengthens the faith and keeps it from slipping into uh, the sensuous attachments that they're they're close to. Trusting types tend to, to give themselves completely over to things to someone. And so to focus on, on the wor- on worthy objects of surrender or beings, ultimately the Dhamma itself. So here it's inspiring things to reflect and, uh, and feed, to nurture the, um, uh, that devotion, that faith. Wisdom types to employ their critical, incisive temperament toward the intuitive. So for them, it's often recommended to try to appreciate and understand and see how the four great elements are working in the body. You know, the earth element of hardness and softness, that whole spectrum of soft, velvety, silky feeling to rough sandpaper, pebbly feelings, to understand the nature of the body through earth element, through the heat, the fire element hot, cold, warm, and the air element of vibration or support, oscillation, movement, and the uh, water element of fluidity and cohesion. This engages their their critical aptitude uh, and leads to insight, leads to understanding. Also to investigate both the unique and universal nature of things. Unique nature would be like investigating those uh, elements and and also all the elements of mind. Really taking to task to understand the nature of anger or joy equally. Calm or restlessness. Those are the unique natures of our experience. And the universal is the fact of anicca, of change, of impermanence, of insecurity, of uh, uh, selflessness. Appreciate those. The aim of honest self-assessment, which was Sariputta's discourse, is to know the nature of the mind. The mind of the Mara mind and the Bodhi mind, the shadow side and the light side. Not recognizing the blemishes. There's no energy. There's no inspiration. There's no faith to walk the path to do what we have to do, to be able to see and let go. And then we we harbor the greed, hatred, delusion. That is, the bronze bowl becomes dustier and dirtier. With that honest self-assessment, however, it's like the polishing. You know, to genuinely appreciate both the qualities of Mara, to see our attachments, our aversions, and our delusions, as well as the uh, our faith and confidence and uh, um, wisdom and uh, uh, reasoning. To appreciate both sides is like polishing that bronze bowl. So its brilliance begins to appear. So the sun comes out from behind the clouds. Once there's a glimpse, every time we have a little glimpse of this brilliance, of this inner brilliance, this radiance, the confidence and the energy appears you know, to 
to uh, propel us onward on the path, to keep taking the next step that we need to take. We walk this path of purification, this middle path of love and understanding, opening to the things that present themselves to, to us, opening to things as they are. Awareness and wisdom are themselves the purifying force. There's nothing extra to do. The awareness and wisdom do the polishing and the brilliance that comes out uh, is the understanding and wisdom that feeds back in more energy, more awareness, and more understanding. The forces of Mara can't stick. They slide off a centered mind or heart, and it causes Mara to tremble. Mara can't stand up to the, the sword of faith and wisdom and applied mind. I guess there's a few minutes left. I'll end with a little antidote Jataka story. Once our prince, once our bodhisattva, great being, was born as a prince. And he had a powerful queen, mother, who intuited that he would be a great king and leader of the realm one day. So she nurtured him well. And when he was a young man of about 16, she said, it's time now for you to go off and study with the great masters. I want you to go to Takasala and learn at this great center of learning all that you need to learn in wisdom and in the care for people of our uh, realm and uh, in the arts of archery and other weaponry. Are you ready to go, my son? Yes. Mom, I'm ready to go. So he bade her farewell, and he set off on the journey to to Kastala. Went over high mountains and across raging rivers and through dark forests. And finally he arrived, and he studied with one of the great teachers of that time and learned all that he needed to learn in the art of, of, of political diplomacy and the art of caring for people of the land and the animals of the land. And he also learned and became very skilled in the five-fold weaponry of archery and uh, sword and spear and club. And the fifth is skillful use of the shield. And he studied hard day in and day out. Every day he'd get up at the sunrise and go out and train and practice and then study and then go to bed tired at night. And again the next day, he'd get up again and go out Day in and day out, for some years, he did this. And then one day, his teacher called him and said, you've learned all you need to go. I think you should go back to your land and begin helping your mother, the queen, to rule the land. Are you ready to go? Yes, I am. He said, I'm going to give you a name because you've so well mastered. I've never seen someone master the weaponries as you have. I'm going to give you the name Prince Five Weapons. Now go on. So then he left. And again, he set out for home, 
crossing huge mountain ranges and raging rivers. This time he was more confident. He did a little kayaking down the rivers. <laughs> went through the forests. And all of a sudden he came up to the edge of one forest and he noticed it was blockaded. And there were soldiers there saying, don't go in this area. Don't go down this path. Don't go. Why not, said Prince Fly Weapons. And the soldier said, there's a huge ogre monster living in there. And any travelers who go in that way get eaten up and gobbled up and we never see them again. I've just spent some years training in all the arts of helping people. And it's my aim to do good. Not only that, but I've become masterful at the five weaponry. And my own teacher said that I have great powers and that if I use them for good, then no harm will come to me. Please, out of my way. And he jumped over the logs and proceeded down that dark path into the forest. And the further he went, the taller the forest seemed to get and the more it seemed to close in. But was our Prince Fly Weapons afraid? No, he wasn't afraid. He just kept walking. And it got darker and darker. And whoosh, 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 crows would fly in front of him. And whoo, 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 the owls would hoot. But did it scare our Prince Fly Weapons? Not at all. Undaunted and fearless, he walked on. But then all of a sudden, the trees themselves started to crash down and crash down. And appearing before him, the size of a coconut tree, was this huge monster. And he had a head as big as a house. He had to be 35, 40 foot feet tall. And his eyes were like bowls. And his nose was like a, the beak of a hawk. And his teeth were like tusks. And they had holes in them and cavities. And even the birds would fly in and out of them and nest in them. And he had this horrible stench came from him and his belly was purple and his fingernails were like brooms and his blotches all over his hands and feet. And he was covered with sticky hair. He was known as the ogre Sticky Hair. <laughs> and our brave young prince looked up at him and he said, out of my way there, you huge monster ogre. <laughs> And the ogre just laughed. <laughs> he says, are you kidding me? And the, monster, and the prince fly weapon said, I warned you, if you don't get out of my way, I'm going to shoot you. And he pulled out his arrow and put it in the, in the bow, pulled it back, ready to shoot. If you take one step closer to me, I'm going to kill you. And the monster laughed again and started to reach for him. And the prince fly weapons let fly this arrow right to the heart, went right to its mark. But what happened? Stuck in the sticky hair. It just flopped down. Within minutes, he fired away 49 more arrows. All hit their mark, but they all just stayed stuck in the sticky hair. And then like a wet dog, the ogre, sticky hair, just shook them off and they went flying all over the place like water drops, flying all over around the prince, Five weapons. He's thought nothing of that. You know, he says, archery isn't the only thing I'm good at. And he took his spear, put it back, and a huge, powerful lunge, again, right at the belly, the purple, blotched belly of sticky hair. But it, too, started to go in and just fell limp in the sticky hair. Undaunted, our brave young Prince Five Weapons said, 
well, this ironwood club of mine that has a, a knot the size of a fist will pulverize his toes and <laughs> pull it back and whack. But it, as soon as it hit the hair, it also just stuck <laughs> and did nothing. So out with a sword, you know, 33 inches long, and a lunge right for the kneecap. Mm. Didn't penetrate even three inches before it too got stuck. Well, he hasn't seen the power of my fist yet, thought our, our little prince, five weapons. And he's going to get it now. I'll put his chin into dust. And he sprung around his a right full roundhouse swing. What happens? Stuck. But then he thought, my left arm is far more powerful than my right arm. So that too went around. <laughs> stuck too. Well, my right kick is far stronger than both my right and left arm. So it too goes in there. It gets stuck as well. Again, our prince says to himself, my left foot is far stronger even than my right foot. And he gives a kick again, stuck. Well, I guess it's now I have to use my head. <laughs> so what happens? Thinking he could pulverize him yet with his head, he gets stuck there too. But by this time, you know, fully stuck, he's just still, you know, cooled out. And the ogre starts thinking, you know, I've never seen such a person. He comes walking in here like a lion, this young prince. And he's, uh, you know, he has all the markings of some great hero or something. Maybe he has a secret weapon. You know, I better be careful. And I'm going to talk to him first. So he lifts him up and he says, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Prince, sir, do you have some you know, secret weapon or something? Yes, I do. I mean, you seem very fearless and, and undaunted by my looks. And usually I just, you know, gobble people up when they come walking by here. So be eaten up because within me is the sword of wisdom. And the ogre said, I, you know, I don't even want to, I won't even eat the size, piece of you the size of a pea. I mean, I, I'm really sorry, and I'm, I'm going to let you free. He put him down. And Prince Five Weapon says, I'm not going to set you free yet, sticky hair. You know, the reason you are, you're such an old monster ogre like you are is because you've been cruel to people a lot in past lives. And that's why you have this uh, situation that you're in now. And as long as you keep being cruel, you're going to move from darkness to darkness. But you're lucky to have met me. Because now you have the opportunity to move from darkness to light. And he gave him you know, a wonderful little Dharma rap about generosity and protecting life and so forth. And pretty soon the ogre was over, so overwhelmed that he even had a couple of tears come to his eyes. And he says, all right, I'll promise to be good. In fact, I will now protect travelers from lions and robbers and thieves and so forth when they come through this forest. You better do that now, said Prince for Five Weapons, for I'm going home and uh, helping my mom with the, with, the, uh, uh, with the kingdom. And I'll be back to check on you. Don't forget, I have this sword of wisdom. Yes, all right. And he sent him off. And our Prince Five Weapons indeed did go home and began helping to rule. And in time, when his parents died, he became 
the king and became known as King Prince Five Weapons. <laughs> Opener of the ways. And as for our ogre friend, he went from life to life to life. And he indeed, in that, in that very life, began to help people and protect them and kept the paths clean and spread the trees apart so that light came in and flowers began to grow. And he became known as the protector of the forest. And that started his movement through many lives. And he was a monkey and a boar and a lion and a tiger and a pheasant. And then he became many human beings. In fact, this very day, he's now a human being. In fact, he's out here somewhere. <laughs> Knowing our minds, we shape them. And by shaping them, we liberate them. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.